Well, the passage that you've heard read tonight is a prayer. Uh, It's a prayer of Habakkuk, and it's a prayer that comes in a very particular context uh, and with a particular purpose. Uh, Sometimes we pray uh, for just to bring a particular day before the Lord, and other times we pray in the course of our regular devotional life with God. Sometimes we pray driven to prayer by necessity of fear or desperation or or wonder and joy. And Habakkuk is giving us a template tonight for how to bring our needs to God and how to view God in the midst of extraordinary circumstances with application that carries over into ordinary prayer as well. So why is Habakkuk praying in this, in this passage? Uh, well, if we glance through chapters one and two and look at where the prophet has come so far, we'll notice that the whole book has been a prayer, actually, and it's been a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. At the very beginning, Habakkuk was troubled uh, by uh, these questions that were uh, driving, drawing him to God, uh, questions like, how long and why? Uh, why do you make me see this sinfulness of, of your people all around me? Uh, Habakkuk doesn't understand why the holy God is sitting by, apparently, and allowing Israel to fall into gross strife and destruction and uh, all kinds of sin. And, and he brings his questions to God. And we know something of the context of, of his prayer and of his questions from the book and, and other books adjacent to it in, in the canon. We know from chapter one, verse six, that at this time, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians were rising to power, but they had not yet become a world superpower. Uh, and because uh, they appear to be raising up, at, but not yet fully known. And we know from verses two through four that the people of God are in a time of moral decline. Uh, this likely places the prophet Habakkuk between, uh, in, in the early seventh century, or late seventh century rather, uh, after the death of King Josiah, who had instituted moral reform in Judah, but before the Babylonians won a decisive victory over Egypt uh, in 605 B.C., So in the wake of good King Josiah's death, this moral decay had begun, and Habakkuk is disturbed by the lawlessness, the violence, and the division among God's people. So behind this question, these questions that Habakkuk brings, is the problem of evil. Uh, It's a perennial problem, and it manifests itself in different questions for believers and for unbelievers, but everybody has to answer this question. Why? Is there evil and suffering and sin and wickedness in the world? Uh, And for believers, the question comes in a particular form because because we know God and we know who he is. The question is something like, Lord, because I know you are good, and because I know you are powerful, and because I know you are sovereign, and you, you have all of these things in fullness and completion, I don't understand the wickedness and the suffering both in the world around me and in my own life and heart. And that we as Christians bring that question to God and that's what Habakkuk is doing here. Uh, His question uh, is not one of sinful anger or of accusation against God. 
but it's confusion that's derived from his faith in God's goodness and in God's justice. So that's the very outset. And then the Lord answers Habakkuk in what follows. And he says to effect in verse five and following, I see this evil that you see and I will address it, but I will address it by bringing an even more wicked nation against Judah. And he, in effect, was fulfilling the covenant curse of Deuteronomy 28 uh, as a result of Israel's sin when the Lord said that he would exile them into a strange land if they broke their, his covenant with them. But he's doing it through the wicked Babylonians. So naturally, Habakkuk was even more confused at this point, and he responds in chapter 1, verse 13, uh, why are you idly looking on while the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. That's Habakkuk's answer. He, he doesn't understand why God has chosen to carry out judgment on his people with a more wicked people. Uh, the Lord's following answer to Habakkuk as the dialogue continues in chapter two is in two parts. He says, I know his soul is puffed up and that it's not upright within him. I know the wickedness of the Babylonians. Uh, God, in fact, from verse six through 20, in chapter two, pronounces woes against them for their particular sins. But for Habakkuk and for his faithful people, then and now, God's answer in the midst of unknowable and undiscernible uh, trial and hardship is that we are to live by faith in God's promises, as we heard at the beginning of this service. Uh, The author of Hebrews brought up this passage, as did Paul in Galatians and Romans, to tell us as believers, as Christians living this side of Christ, just as Habakkuk on that side of Christ, uh, was to live by faith in God's promises in the midst uh, of the time between God's promise and its fulfillment. Uh, So with that overview of chapters one and two, uh, we come to Habakkuk's prayer in chapter three, and we see that it is an expression of that very faith of Habakkuk. It is Habakkuk's uh, faithful response to the prophecy of chapter two, verse four, that the righteous will live by faith. Uh, This faith is a faith that's grounded in God's power and in God's promises. Uh, And it's a faith that rests in God's works throughout history where he has revealed himself to his people in the times of Moses and of David and of Deborah and of many others uh, in the time of the conquest through Joshua. Uh, All of these times of Israel's history are swirling in Habakkuk's mind as this collage of God's wonderful works comes through his prayer. It's, it's a prayer that has digested God's faithfulness uh, throughout Old Testament revelation. Uh, and what he teaches us by, the way, by this way of praying is that in the midst of hardship and uncertainty, we can rejoice in the Lord and we can hope in his promises. Uh, And we'll see those two things in turn. We'll see first that Habakkuk rejoiced in the Lord in the midst of unbelievable circumstances and that he hoped in God's promises for the future. So his rejoicing in the Lord's works comes first. And uh, it's a rejoicing that has as its focus the greatness and the all-sufficiency of God. Uh, This is saturated in his prayer. God's greatness and God's all-sufficiency the first place that he turns to meditate on the greatness of God is the Exodus. And the Exodus for the Old Testament is the paradigmatic salvation event. It is um, 
over and over again throughout the law and throughout the prophets and throughout Israel's historical books, uh, uh, God's people are always remembering that he is the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Uh, This comes first in uh, uh, Exodus 6, verse 7, where God says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Uh, More prominently, the first words of God's covenant with Israel through Moses at Sinai and begin with those words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And the Ten Commandments are founded on that covenant relationship. It is because God is our God, God was their God, and because he is our God, then we can have any hope of following his commands. Uh, we, We cannot obey him apart from his grace working in us and his extending initiative to us first. That is what he did at, at the Exodus, and that is what he does for us in Christ. Uh, so it's not surprising that Habakkuk begins his recollection of God's wonderful works with the Exodus. Uh, we see this uh, by the way that he begins his prayer in verse 3. He says, God came from Timon uh, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. These were places uh, in Exodus route from Mount Sinai to the land of Canaan. Uh, Timon appears to have been a leading city in Edom, south of Israel, and the Paran wilderness is in the Sinai Peninsula, south of Edom. So when he says God came from Timon and the Lord from Mount Paran, he is picturing God leading his people from Mount Sinai and from, from the Exodus up into Canaan. And uh, that, that's the first place that his mind goes as he considers his Redeemer. But He goes on and he unfolds uh, event after event after attribute after picture of God's greatness. And this first God is their redeemer in in their experience with him. That was how they came to know him was through redemption uh, as well as through his creation. But after discussing God's redemption, uh, Habakkuk turns to God's creation as well. He says that his splendor covered the heavens. Chapter 3, verse 3. And his worthiness of praise is seen throughout the whole earth. Uh, He's also the sovereign Lord over death and destruction. Uh, Habakkuk recalls the pestilence and plague that God sent throughout the land of Egypt, uh, as well as other times in Israel's history when when God sent a pestilence uh, in response to David's disobedient census. The, The Lord has used plague and pestilence to demonstrate his power at various times throughout Israel's history. Uh, So, Habakkuk says, before him went pestilence and plague, followed at his heels. The Lord has authority over these destructive elements and uh, he used them too for the redemption of his people. Uh, God is also the victor over Israel's enemies, the Midianites. Uh, We see this in Habakkuk 3.7. He used his servant Gideon in the time of the judges to defeat the Midianites who were stealing all of the produce and the livestock of Israel. They were uh, despoiling Israel of their possessions and they were raiding the Israelites. And he, he might be recalling Judges 7 when Gideon and his 300 men, after, after the famous story of the blowing of the trumpet and the smashing of the pots and the victory in battle, uh, they followed that victory by ambushing the Midianite camp and reclaiming the territory of the Jordan River. 
so that may be the background to uh, seeing these tents of cushion in affliction and the curtains in the land of Midian. Seeing God's wrath against the rivers in Habakkuk 3.8. These are some of the backgrounds that might be coming to his mind as God's victory over Midian, uh, the uh, enemies of Israel. And God was not only the victor over Midian, but he is a warrior who fought on Israel's behalf uh, time and again throughout their history. Uh, We see this in the victory songs of Moses and of Deborah and of David. Uh, God is often pictured as a warrior. Uh, Moses pictures the blast of God's nostrils causing the Red Sea to part, uh, allowing Israel to walk through safely and, and crushing the Egyptians. Deborah recalls God marching from the region of Edom in Judges 5 and causing Mount Sinai to quake before him. And David describes God's arrows and lightnings defeating the snares of death that so often threatened to overtake him as he was fleeing from Saul or Absalom. So God's decisive victory over his enemies and ours is seen in all of those events, but most completely through Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the wrath to come, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. We know that his word implanted in our hearts is able to save our souls, and that he has reconciled us to God by his death, and more than that, he will save us by his life, as Paul says in Romans 5. So Habakkuk goes on to say that God is the savior of his people. He's seen him as redeemer, as creator, as deliverer, and warrior, and victor, and now he's the savior in verse 13 of Habakkuk 3. Uh, He goes out for salvation, and he is the righteous judge who thrashes the nations in anger and crushes the head of the house of the wicked who do not trust in him and do not live according to his law. Uh, In chapter 3, verse 12, Habakkuk recalls God marching through the earth in fury and threshing the nations in anger. This is striking, vivid language, and and it's matched likely to the conquest over Canaan. Uh, That's what happened, and it was a sort of intrusion of the final judgment into that day and age, Uh, an expression of God's holiness and wrath against sin. Uh, God explained this to Israel in Deuteronomy. He told them that they were going to to take the land and that it was going to be his act of judgment against the inhabitants uh, who who would not turn to him. Uh, Salvation, therefore, is a key theme throughout the whole passage, and it's a key theme of Habakkuk's prayer, and he sees God as Savior, uh, as do we. We come to God In prayer, as we rejoice in him, we rejoice in him as our savior. Um, The pattern of his prayer hasn't changed for us. The the Lord Jesus Christ, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, is for us our redeemer and our sovereign Lord, our defender and our warrior and our victor and our righteous judge, who in Christ he pronounces us not guilty. And just like Habakkuk did, we can call to mind God's saving works and remember them when in time of need and in time of confusion or fear, uh, Habakkuk is teaching us that our prayers do not arise first or finally from our own thoughts and feelings. He brings those to God, but even in the beginning of the book, his prayer was informed by his knowledge of God's law and God's uh, he says that the law was paralyzed in chapter one, verse four. Uh, his challenges were not 
challenges about his own personal uh, loss of wealth or of health. Uh, his problem was that the law was being perverted and that God's people were not following him. So he teaches us in what prompts his prayer and in what guides it through to the ends that we are to remember God's salvation for us and, and God's victory for us in Christ when we recall uh, the comfort that he gives to us. Now, these past evidence of God's powerful salvation gave Habakkuk a present confidence. And they did more than that, though. God's wonderful works are not dead stories or relics that don't have a bearing on the future because of who God is. He is unchanging. He is immutable. His ways are everlasting, Habakkuk 3, verse 7. He's faithful, and he has made promises to us to give us eternal rest in his presence. So not only can we rejoice in the Lord now, as Habakkuk did, but we can hope in his promises for the future. And that is what Habakkuk does in chapter three, verse two, when he essentially says, revive your work, O Lord. He says, uh, in the midst of the years, revive it. Uh, He's been told that God is going to destroy Jerusalem and take the Jews captive through the Babylonians. But he's also been told that God will judge the Babylonians for their wickedness in this act. And notice what this does. The dual prophecy that Judah will be judged, but that Babylon will also be judged for their sin in that act creates this intervening period between those two judgments. And that period is when this prayer is meant to function most. It it, it always is a guide for us. But in particular, it appears that Habakkuk is giving this prayer as something for Israel to pray when they were, verse two, in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, revive it and make it known. uh, Notice that there are liturgical markings in this chapter. Uh, In verse one, it's described as according to Shigianot. We don't know what that means exactly, but it's used in a few psalms and it's some type of liturgical notation, probably. Uh, even more clearly in verse 19 at the end of the psalm, or at the end of the prayer, rather. Uh, it's dedicated to the choir master with stringed instruments. So this poetic prayer appears to have been composed for the worship services of Israel. Uh, and it was meant for that period between those two judgments. Uh, of course, beyond that as well, but it would have had immediate application to that period as that is what was prompting Habakkuk's prayer. Uh, On account of these observations, Palmer Robertson describes this chapter as a song to be rehearsed in the congregation of Israel throughout the dark years which Israel must soon begin to experience. So as they face this impending invasion, uh, they are called to rejoice in the Lord and to take joy in the God of their salvation, uh, verse 18. And so, as I said, we too are in our own kind of midst of the years. We live between the two comings of Christ, and we are called to recall God's past salvation and his victory over death and sin on the cross and his sacrificial substitute in Christ for us uh, and to pray for him, to revive his work and, and to make it, more real in our hearts and to come to greater expression in our lives. So we should pray the kind of prayers that Habakkuk prays. And we can 
Furthermore, couple the fear of the Lord that Habakkuk describes with uh, faith in his mercy that we see even more fully than Habakkuk could see it. Habakkuk knew, of course, of God's mercy. Uh, and we have seen it accomplished in decisively at Calvary. Uh, when Habakkuk remembers the brightness of God's presence and the power of his plagues and his wrath against the rebellious Canaanites, he's fearful. Notice the prominent place of fear in the passage. Uh, he says in verse two, in your work, O Lord, do I fear. And then at, by the end, he's trembling and his bones are rotten. He's describing the, the fearfulness of thinking of God's power and God's judgment on the nations in the past. And th- this is a common response. It, the, the Israelites responded the same way at the foot of Mount Sinai when, when God spoke out of, uh, out of the thunder and the cloud, they begged that no further words would be given to them. And uh, so there's this fear that, that is uh, caused by a revelation of God's power and God's justice. And so some help with understanding this fear, Peter van Maastricht talks briefly about fear as uh, a part of the practical implications of some of God's attributes when he's considering God's immensity and God's righteousness. Uh, he talks about those great, the greatness and righteousness of God. One effect of them, as we consider them, is to elicit fear, to flee from sin, and to repent of sin, and to not have any dealings with God without the mediator between us. That's the key part. To, the, the fear drives us to Christ, uh, and in him we, we have uh, no condemnation, and we have been justified, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so, along with those promptings from the righteousness and immensity of God to, to flee to Christ, uh, Herman Bovink points out another aspect of, of God's righteousness and his immensity, that now since the fullness of time has come and Christ has accomplished the fulfillment of all righteousness— our relationship with God is described less often in terms of fear and more often in terms of faith. Uh, both are there, uh, but the fear of the Lord, Bavink describes, is, he says, bound up with an assortment of other religious attitudes, such as believing, trust, taking refuge, leaning on God, and, and these have been a part of relationship with God since, since the earliest periods of God's revelation. And now, fear has not, uh, Bavink goes on to say, fear has not completely vanished from subjective religion in the New Testament, but occurs much less frequently. The usual word for subjective religion in the New Testament is faith. Uh, so we can see Habakkuk's trembling and, and perhaps ask the question, is that trembling something that, that is a model for me? And, and I would say, uh, insofar as sin causes us uh, to tremble at God's righteousness and his judgment, that there is, there is an element of fear in, caused by uh, a sinner approaching the holy God, but that sin should drive us to the mediator uh, and, and to rest ultimately where the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us to rest. Uh, when it asks us, how does Christ coming to judge the living and the dead comfort us? Uh, the answer is that in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven. 
The one who will judge us is the one who has already removed our curse. So, having seen Habakkuk rejoice in the Lord, and having seen him rejoice and hope in his promises, it remains for us to ask, how? How do we do that? I, I don't know about you, but I see him praying, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Uh, that strikes me as a challenge, given what he says in verse 17, that he's describing a time of loss of food and livestock and material poverty. He's seeing that uh, the Babylonians are about to lay siege to Jerusalem. The, the, the detail of siege warfare in chapter one is frightening, and they would have been begun to hear about the brutality of the Babylonians likely by now. And yet Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the Lord. How does he rejoice in the Lord? And how do we rejoice in the Lord uh, in the midst of our trying circumstances? When a loved one dies, or when we lose our job, when we've been hurt or sinned against, when we just don't understand why God in his providence has put us in our current position in life. Well, a few recommendations, I think, arise from the passage. Uh, First, we must know that the one, uh, we must know the one whom we have believed. Uh, as, As Paul writes, we need to be convinced that he is able to guard what we have entrusted to him until the day when he comes. Uh, to take us, to be with him. We must know him. Uh, Habakkuk begins his prayer in chapter one. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? He had been crying out continually to God. He, and he calls him by his name, oh Lord, Yahweh. So we call out, Father, uh, Jesus, uh, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, how long do we have to endure? Uh, and the answer we Part of the answer we'll receive is, again, what we heard in our call to worship today is, is the author of Hebrews told the believers that they had joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because they knew they had uh, an abiding possession. They, they had their eyes set on an eternal inheritance, and that's an inheritance that we have been promised as well. So by knowing the Lord who has secured that inheritance for us, we comfort ourselves and call out to him in times of trial. Uh, Second, knowing him, we must love him. We need to value what he values and love what he loves and flee from what he hates. Like we said earlier, the source of Habakkuk's distress in chapter one was not personal loss. It was his distress that the law was paralyzed, that that righteousness was not being done and justice was not being practiced. God's people were not loving him with all their hearts and loving their neighbors as themselves. So that, that was what drove him to prayer. And as we meditate on God's salvation, on his love for us and on his righteous character, we, we pray that he will conform us to those same desires that Habakkuk models for us. And finally, we have to trust him. Uh, the righteous shall live by faith, Habakkuk is told in chapter two, verse four. And we are told three times in the New Testament that that is a powerfully important verse for our faith in God uh, in between his victory at the cross and his coming to redeem us again to take us to be with him at Christ's return. So in the face of fear or suffering or bewilderment or whatever we may face, we need to turn our eyes to God and to his salvation. We need to hope in Christ and in his coming. And we need to rest all of our fears and all of our prayers in the Lord who we know 
and who we love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you have revealed yourself to us and you revealed yourself uh, in your works of creation and and most clearly in your work of salvation at the cross of Calvary. We, We thank you that because your justice and your mercy are both seen in Christ, we can uh, we can come and turn to you when we see our need and our sin, and, and we can hope in future promises because you have demonstrated your faithfulness in the past. Lord, help us to pray more like you've taught us to pray, uh, to pray by faith and to pray with confidence in the midst of uh, odds that would tempt us to despair. Lord, stir up that faith in us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.